Hello there, humans of Earth. I'm sitting here with uh, Jonathan Toniolo, dear friend of mine. We are currently careening down the highway in Northern California, heading to a destination in the, uh, the woods up here, heading to take a look at a cabin that I'm considering purchasing, actually. But uh, enough of that nonsense. Uh, <laughs> Jonathan often goes by Tony, so I might call him Tony in this conversation. Yes. Uh, or Jonathan. I usually call him Tony. You might hear me have multiple identity crises in the course of this conversation. So me. He has a lot of those. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, we were just kind of thinking we would maybe record a conversation talking about some of the things that we are interested in and frequently talk about. Um... Jonathan is uh, currently applying to the California Institute of Integral Studies where he already completed a bachelor's in, what, what was your area of study? Uh, it was interdisciplinary studies. Interdisciplinary studies. Yeah, so it's it basically a general liberal arts degree. Um, and you're, going, you're trying to go back to obtain what exactly? Yeah, so it's a, it's a master's program in integral counseling psychology, um, and I guess we could just dive into the integral part of that, maybe? Yeah, or, yeah, let's talk about what integral is, um, what, what is integral counseling and psychology? Yeah, so over the past few days I've actually been trying to give the elevator pitch to this. It's been actually pretty difficult, but I guess you could say it's um, a more holistic approach to psychology and, and healing and well-being. Um, and one way to go about doing that is by synthesizing um, a lot of Eastern and Western philosophical models about um, psychology and how a human being develops and can thrive in the world. What are some of the primary frameworks or ideologies or philosophies that Integral attempts to integrate into its Yeah, world? yeah. Well, I haven't um, outlined all of them, but a few that I know um, are considered a lot of Buddhist thought. Um, there's a lot of psychotherapy books written and from a Buddhist approach in the Integral scene. Um, Hindu approaches, and then a lot of developmental theory um, from Western schools of thought. So, yeah. Do you know which developmental models most influenced? Uh, I, I, my understanding is that Ken Wilber was kind of the originator of integral theory, and uh, is that correct? Um, yes. I'm not too familiar, actually, with the, I, I think there's a Ken Wilber kind of um, elaborated more on it, but it was originally developed by Sri Aurobindo. Mm. Um, yeah, and I, I need to do more research on him. But that's interesting. I didn't realize that Sri Aurobindo was the originator of Integral. Yeah. Yeah, 
have. I'm not sure exactly which components he developed and which Ken developed, but yeah, those two are the main sources I, from my understanding. So. When I think of integral theory, I definitely associate it immediately with spiral dynamics. Um, do you know the exact uh, connection there? Um, yeah, so from my understanding, spiral dynamics was developed by Claire Graves, a psychologist. Claire right? Graves. Yeah, and um, I know Ken was informed by him, and his model is closely related to spiral dynamics, but and, and they are distinct in some ways, and I'm not sure, not really clear about those distinctions, but there is a lot of overlap, yeah. Um, basically, basically, I think the overlap is between what Ken refers to as structures of consciousness and the stages that are involved in spiral dynamics, right? Mm. So you have, um, I mean, different models have different levels and number of levels, but I guess generally speaking, there's seven. It's magic, mythic, or, sorry, archaic, magic, mythic, modern, postmodern, and then integral. Or I might be missing one there, but generally that's the sequence, yeah. And in spiral dynamics, those are basically considered stages of human development, and is it uh, proposed that those stages of individual human development actually mirror our history of collective development as well, basically? Is that is that the kind of proposition? Right, yeah, I think um, the theory posits that societies um, reflect the stage of consciousness of the majority of the population. So once a new stage comes online, um, generally the collective systems and infrastructure of society will evolve to reflect that stage. Um, so it's usually you know, a vanguard pushing the new stage of consciousness and then they you know, lobby for all these changes in society and eventually society updates to, to meet that new stage of consciousness and reflect those values that that consciousness represents. Interesting. Makes sense. <clears throat> yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah. And Ken Wilber's model and spiral dynamics both have share these same structure, like they identify the same primary structures or stages of human development. Just to clarify that point. Yeah. Again. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure how, in what ways they overlap, in which ways they don't, or they, too specifically. Um, so. Well, what, the ones you listed were spiral dynamics, or were they right? Um, Wilbur. Okay, there will be. Yeah. yeah, and those, I think those ring a bell as the same labels that I read when I looked into the spiral dynamics framework a while back, so I think there's a lot of overlap there, but anyway, I, I guess, I think spiral dynamics and models of human development in general are interesting because uh, I find them fascinating because they basically try to map out um, well, they, they sort of are founded on, on, the, on the assumption that human beings are sort of uh, meant to evolve or naturally evolve throughout the course of life and over the course of history, and that we, um, we kind of gradually are unlocking these higher or additional like layers or levels of consciousness and um, yeah does, does that does that resonate with you 
I just I have a thought and it's it's not coming out in the most elegant way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you're basically saying that it maps out the developmental aspect of a human being. Um, yeah. yeah. Would you, do you feel like the word evolve is appropriate? Like they map out kind of the course of individual and collective evolution? Yes. I think, yeah, it's a very apt term. Yeah, and I think that uh, it's fairly common among people alive today to not necessarily think of human development as something that does and should continue to progress once you reach your adult years. A lot of people seem to reach, you know, age 25 or whatever, and then more or less, like, stagnate, or they, they just kind of calcify into whatever their current patterns are, whatever the conditioning was they were raised with, they kind of like settle into that, and, yeah, yeah. and they, there's not really a sense that, oh no, why would you stop there, you're only 25, you should be continuing to try right. to progress further along the path of development. Right, um, right. Yeah, I think that point of view gets reinforced by like the pop psych notion of the brain stops developing at 25, and so I guess people just assume, well, well, you know what, my brain's done developing, I guess it should just, you know, that's my cue to uh, stop learning and growing, because mm-hmm. nothing else, you know, can, can get uh, absorbed at this point. Yeah, it's a totally fallacious way to go, to think about learning and uh, development, yeah. Right. And especially as we uh, enter this kind of period of human history that's particularly precarious where our our technology technological power is basically increasing exponentially at this point we're gaining more and more power to reshape the world I think we arguably need to be think thinking much more consciously you know, on a widespread level about how to develop individually and collectively to reach these um, kind of higher rungs on the ladder of evolution that will basically allow us to just do a better, more comprehensive job of making sense of the world and then making choices in light of the of the sense making that we do because we're reaching a point where as Daniel Schmachtenberger likes to say, we're gaining the power of gods but without the love and wisdom and care of gods, we'll self-destruct so we basically need to learn how as a species to become to increase our collective wisdom enough that we can actually yield this tremendous technological power that we're gaining in such a way so as not to destroy ourselves and the rest of the biosphere. Do you kind of see um, the line of work that you're pursuing as related as related to that as kind of like uh, it's, it's, is it especially important for human beings to focus on developmental pathways at this historical moment? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, yeah, those are great points you raised. Um, I think that a lot of barriers to growth and development and cultivating the wisdom and love that's needed is based in trauma. Mm. Um, and I've come to that realization pretty slowly over the years, but it's becoming more crystallized um, recently. Um, and so that's where I see my contribution being made, my little niche, is to help people overcome trauma and different limiting beliefs and barriers to, so they can um, move on to 
levels of consciousness and levels of awareness um, because it can often be terrifying and trauma you know has a very strong hold on people's nervous systems and their capacity to be courageous you know um, so I think that's important work yeah yeah, let's dive more into talking about trauma because um, I think it's interesting to think in terms of both individual and collective traumas. Like, I've heard the term kind of like intergenerational trauma. Yeah. Like, uh, I really think it's the case that a large portion of humanity at this point is either... I mean, we're all carrying at least some amount of trauma. It's good to get clear on that, I guess, that, like, as we go about our day-to-day lives in the world, things are messy, there's there's pain, and we all undergo at least, like, micro-traumas fairly regularly throughout our lives, and then, and then a lot of us end up experiencing... Uh, and really, I mean, if you live a long enough amount of time on Earth, it's almost undoubtable that you're going to go through some kind of really significant trauma whether that be the death of a cherished loved one or uh, a terrible heartbreak or, you know, something on the much worse end of the spectrum, like uh, someone close to you gets murdered or you, you yourself get abused or, um, you know, someone breaks into your home. like Right, there's an endless number of ways to get traumatized. Right, endless number of ways. So at this moment on Earth, I think that basically everyone is carrying around some amount of trauma, and then I think vast, vast masses of people are sort of carrying on trauma that was passed on to them by their parents, because, uh, and I guess it's not necessarily that their parents' trauma has just been transposed onto them, but there's, there's this kind of mantra that I have heard in recent times that really resonates with me that goes hurt people, hurt people, healed people, heal people, and uh, I think the way that it kind of works is that a lot of, a lot of people are carrying some kind of pain caused by dysfunctional family relationships that they experienced growing up, and it's really hard not to replicate those same kind of patterns and dysfunctions that you inherited from your parents and your family when you start having kids and so basically you just end up reenacting a lot of the same things and trauma gets passed on that way and then I'm also open to the idea that uh, that enormous traumas like you know let's say you're from a lineage where a couple generations ago there was a genocide that wiped out a lot of uh, your ancestors I like I'm, I'm open to the idea that uh, that kind of collective trauma could kind of echo or like resonate on some kind of you know I don't know uh, genetic or I don't know yeah. epigenetic morphic resonance like whatever kind of level and, yeah. and, and yeah. people carry these traumas that their ancestors even experienced a couple generations ago sure any sure, thoughts sure. on that yeah, I don't have a lot of thoughts because I haven't um, dug too far into the intergenerational trauma work, but what you're saying makes total sense. Um, I think a lot, and a lot of people have, um, have commented on this, um, we're operating on a lot of momentum and um, leftover legacies from history, 
individually and collectively. Um, and so, and those aren't always healthy or productive legacies. Um, mm. And a lot of times, like you said, they're traumatic legacies. Um, so we need to find ways to heal that. Well, first be aware of it and then find ways to heal it, you know, so we can move forward and create new, more positive legacies for our future generations. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I think, I guess, another thought occurred to me, another way of understanding intergenerational trauma is just that simply the knowledge that your recent ancestors underwent something really terrible could in itself be very traumatizing in you. Mm. Like, I think, mm-hmm. I think the... The obvious example that jumps to mind as an American is the situation of African Americans understanding the fact that just as recently as, you know, potentially two, three generations ago, their, you know, their relatives were, well, you know, just recently as a few generations ago, they had ancestors who were enslaved in this country. Right. And then after that were, you know, uh, Denied, denied rights and underwent all sorts of various injustices and just I think just the knowledge that your say great uh, great grandfather or something was was a slave in your country would have effects on your psyche that I think it's it's really hard to understand as as someone who isn't isn't grappling with that and totally. so yeah I think that it's really important to empathize with how different it would be to to be raised and have this knowledge that like oh you know my family was actually brought here against their will mm-hmm. in chains and then forced to do you know hard labor their whole lives like that right. is uh, right and and what you mentioned too it's like once the 13th amendment was passed it was the 13th right to end slavery it wasn't like uh, race relations were perfect then. There was still, like you said, all these policies that inhibited black communities from thriving in the way a lot of other communities could. Um, and so, yeah, when you when you I guess when you gain that awareness, it's it could be like it could produce a lot of resentment towards the world and especially the the inheritors of whoever benefited from those from those times. Right. You know. Right, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and I do think that trauma is uh, one of the largest sources, or perhaps the largest source of resentment um, in just anyone's life worldwide, and resentment is something I've been thinking about a lot lately as, as a kind of really dark, acidic, corrosive kind of force that when you when you harbor resentment within yourself you know you're trying to direct this resentment or bitterness toward these entities that you perceive as having um you know hurt well having hurt you or done some injustice to you and um you know often often it's absolutely the case that you yeah you feel resentment toward whoever inflicted a trauma upon you but what ends up happening is that unfortunately, like, you're kind of feeling this resentment, trying to hold on to something to, like, uh, you're almost trying to symbolically hurt them with your, by holding on to this rage, but the resentment ends up actually just eating you 
alive from the inside. Like yes. it's really a corrosive acid that gradually will just uh, cause you to basically atrophy as a human being into this state of of just kind of gradually coming to almost resent or hate everything and yes. just being unable to actually um, you know take responsibility in your life and uh, and and become become a functional like uh, person who feels decently well a lot of the time resentments basically just like when I encounter people who are very resentful nowadays I I've become so sensitive to it that I experience it as almost like emotional poison I'm like mm, yeah I, it creates barriers to connection mm-hmm. right yeah. yeah barriers to connection and I just get the sense that we're basically constantly kind of absorbing and em- empathically kind of picking up on the energy of everyone around us um, and when I spend time around resentful people I just get the sense that like oh geez they're carrying a lot of very um, very dark sticky like kind of emotional muck and yeah. like it, they're just kind of spewing it out in the form of like complaining and blaming and yeah. and ranting and I can empathize with like the hurt and the wound and like the trauma that is yes. underneath that resentment and I think it's very important to do so. And yet I also have the reaction of thinking, uh, wow, I really shouldn't spend too much time around this person because I this will influence me. This this sure. I can't help but absorb this to some extent. Sure, sure, sure. Um, and so yeah, I think I think noticing resentment in yourself can be kind of a gateway to identifying yourself as someone who is carrying some kind of deep wound or trauma and yes. potentially kind of excavating into that resentment to find out where it originated and then healing the trauma is then perhaps you know a way to let go of the resentment what what are some what are some of the most effective ways in your current understanding of actually going about the process of healing trauma yeah that well um, I think you need, for starters, you need a safe container to, to feel safe enough to go deep into those traumatic places um, for them to be healed. Um, and then awareness, um, you need to, a lot of times, have someone reflect back to you a lot of the defense mechanisms that come up um, when you're getting close to trauma um, so you can become aware of those and once that happens you can more effectively see the trauma for what it is and not have to be bypassed by all these defenses um, you know there's a lot of work Gabor Mate talks about this in uh, Besser, Besser van der Kolk I think he's a, a Dutch position and they suggest that trauma stays lodged in the body in the form of a frozen nervous system right um so a lot of modalities um try to target the body as well like somatic therapies of just um getting in touch with different sensory experiences or different um aspects of the body that you might have been fragmented from um Mm. 
So for, in my case, like I um, had a series of traumas um, in my early 20s and late teens. Um, and one of the most effective ways for me was um, exercising and running. I, I did a lot of running um, when I felt most vulnerable. Um, and that was a really effective grounding practice for me to just return to the body. Because trauma takes you out of the body, right? And so we need to find ways to re-inhabit the body as a, as a form of healing, right? Um, but also, like, the first piece is needing to identify the trauma properly and becoming and understanding it and where it comes from. That's, that's a huge piece, too. So, yeah. Yeah, what do you think... Um, what do you think happens when a person gains the self-awareness of where the trauma comes from and they can really understand and articulate like what what happened to them and, the, and they can see how this trauma is leading them to enact these kind of defense mechanisms and this kind of guardedness how do you think how do you think that helps to actually heal the trauma is there a way in which simply understanding things will just kind of shift yes your mind into a new kind of track mm-hmm. about it yeah, it's kind of like, well, for, for listeners, Jordan and I had a conversation last night about um, how when you read books and certain things just click in your being um, on a variety of different levels, you feel shifted, you feel transformed, um, and understanding, I feel like, can have that effect, just uh, gaining a new perspective or understanding can um, cause like a physiological shift in your system. That can be very, really powerful. You know, so. Yeah, I think that makes sense, and that's part of why therapy can be incredibly powerful to have just a neutral, well, not necessarily neutral, but a kind of uh, just a, a third-party compassionate listener who's not, you know, necessarily initially personally involved in your life who you're just able to just start sharing everything with and just and just letting it out and um, elaborating and that person can gradually become a mirror and just help you to basically gain a level of self-understanding that you didn't previously possess and and I do think that I do think it's very healing just simple self-awareness and self-understanding alone is very healing because if you're traumatized and you don't really realize it or know where it's coming from, you're just going to experience life as like this kind of rocky road of, of a lot of dark, confusing emotions and reactions that seem undesirable or suboptimal and you don't really know where they're coming from. And so it could quickly begin to seem like life is just this really just shitty, treacherous affair that's filled with all this crap, and once you identify the fact that, oh, I didn't originally feel this way, this isn't necessarily how human beings are supposed to feel or have to feel, I I can see that I underwent certain events in my life that left this deep kind of scar, and that's created this, that that wound is kind of, there's, there's this, this gravity emanating from that that is kind of pulling me down 
into the into this this murkier trench of the human experience where my whole experience is being kind of overshadowed like sh- there's this shadow or like this taintedness over everything because of this wound it at least gives you the resolution of being able to rationally make sense of why you're feeling what you're feeling and why you're undergoing these emotional trials and that could probably bring a lot of peace of mind just to have an explanation that makes sense absolutely absolutely yeah when I uh, you know I I feel pretty integrated and healed related to a specific trauma in the past but as I was healing that I've I've noticed um, certain things triggering me and having that understanding definitely brought peace of mind because I could put it into perspective about why things were playing out the way they were, like why I was getting triggered and I could understand like, oh, this is why, Mm. because this situation is very similar to what my traumatic situation was. Um, And so, yeah, getting rid of the the confusion helps to keep, prevents you from going down this spiral of that this is ultimately the way life should be or yeah just the way things are you know right yeah 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 I think uh, and once you've kind of gained that understanding uh, one thing I was going to ask I guess as you were talking just now was what does it mean to you to integrate a trauma um, mm-hmm. I have an idea of what that means but go ahead and uh, share your understanding of that if you like yeah sophisticated understanding of yourself that factors in 
variables that you weren't considering, and then yes. doing that, yeah, just allows you to reach this more whole place where you have a more accurate self-understanding, and you at least kind of know why you are the way you are, and then that alone is very healing, I think, but then to go a step further and actually really heal the trauma, I think, and like release a lot of that pent-up emotional gunk and tension and pain, um, I think spiritual practices can be really useful. You were talking about like somatic therapy and uh, therapies that bring people back to the body. I think that that is a huge part of my blossoming understanding of how to deal with trauma, basically, because I've seen, I've seen firsthand um, in people undergoing, I mean, doing things as, as you know, uh, seemingly basic as a yoga practice could be very helpful for releasing trauma because a yoga practice brings you back to the body and grounds right. you in the body and reactivates your kind of bodily awareness and, and your body, bodily intelligence, and there is a way in which the body actually knows how to heal itself, and when you reactivate your awareness of it in a certain way, it will begin to do this work for you and let things go in a way that's you know, difficult to explain and might not be currently scientifically understood to a great extent, but but there is a way in which yoga and related practices such as breath work, I've seen transformational breath work, have a dramatic effect on people. Uh, you do these breathing exercises lying on your back and next thing you know, you, your body is kind of clenching up in different ways and you're realizing like, wow, I'm carrying this baggage in this part of my body. Next thing you know, you're just sobbing and you're just, and I've, I've had this experience firsthand and you're just like, oh shit, my body is releasing something that's been that I've been carrying that I didn't even really realize was there yeah yeah, um, yeah. and so I think um, yeah spiritual practices that bring you back to the body I imagine that meditation could be really useful in this regard as well and then um, probably plant medicine therapies as well such as you know, something like ayahuasca or psilocybin have the potential to really result in uh, a reactivation of the bodily sense and kind of a direct confrontation with what is being carried in the body and what is really, uh, I mean, the, those modalities allow access to realms of the mind that are normally unconscious and so they, they allow you to understand what's been bogging you down in a way that you couldn't previously and then right. potentially can allow you to purge that through various experiences while you're undergoing the, the plant medicine experience, such as um, yawning, laughing, crying, or in the most quintessential case, actually uh, dry heaving or vomiting on ayahuasca and having this strong sense that almost more than a symbolic sense, a sense that you're actually, that the things that are being expelled from your mouth are actually uh, partially immaterial in nature and you're literally cleansing yourself of this accumulated um, traumatic resin, this kind of gunk that has been that, that built up as a result of particular experiences. So, yeah, yeah, I think all of these things can be really useful. I, I 
uh, as far as therapy, spiritual modalities, plant medicine work. I also, I know that, you know, Dr. Jordan Peterson has his self-authoring program, which is also meant, uh, you know, supposed to be potentially quite useful for healing trauma. Uh, he often discusses studies suggesting that writing in detail about past traumas or past very difficult experiences can allow your mind to basically yeah, click into a new understanding where you actually have a more coherent kind of narrative understanding of what happened to you. You've got a more coherent kind of story. You're able to tell yourself about what happened to you and that this alone is therapeutic and allows for you to really begin to move on and release that trauma in a way that you couldn't when your understanding was muddled and not really articulated in the form that it would take if you actually spelled it out in prose. Right, so, right. So yeah, there are a variety of ways, um, I think, to go about healing trauma. I think I think spending time in nature can be very therapeutic for healing trauma. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there are a lot of things, but... Yeah, but the, the, the thing, I think most people just aren't aware in, in which like the degree to which they're carrying around trauma and, and I think that's the biggest issue too I mean there are all these ways to heal it but um, right. we're just very trauma illiterate in general as, as a society um, and so we just accept certain behaviors and patterns of relating as normal because of it you know like I think most people wouldn't consider their predominant habits as being based on trauma but that's the case, and I, mm. I think for a lot of people, including myself, there's many ways in which I act out based on trauma, you know, mm. so, yeah, I think just bringing a general awareness of who you might be beyond trauma could uh, give you, yeah, a glimpse of, of something different. What would you say are some common patterns that people act out based on trauma? Yeah. Like an example. Um... Definitely emotional blockages is the first thing that comes to mind. Um, just like a general guardedness related to other people or the world in general. Um, let's see what else. Um, just suspicion of others' motives. Um, being excessively confrontational at times.
twitchy, anxiety-ridden person who's always looking for the next hit of dopamine from whatever super normal electronic stimuli you can get your hands on or, you know, whatever uh, bioengineered super cannabis or, you know, <laughs> any variety of booze at the store. You got porn, you got Tinder, you got yeah. Netflix, you got online casinos. Like, we're literally awash in... Have you, have you heard Gabor Mate speak about his... his uh addiction to buying classical music no yeah that was that was his like covert addiction <laughs> yeah I think I think what? it was on a TED talk yeah he was mentioning like yeah I, I had this addiction to, to buying classical music I didn't even know it you know that's that's like the epitome of just subtle addictions that you would never think would that's be. like the most docile addiction <laughs> I can imagine but all the more dangerous because of the, the yeah. facility you know like, yeah. right yeah, I suppose if you're spending a lot of money on that, it's it's hard to. Oh no, I'm buying this because you know I just love music and <laughs> Beethoven's Fifth. Just really activates me, which it does, by the way. So. <laughs> yeah, I, just, I I think just Gabor Mate specifically, his descriptions of addiction as almost always emerging from some kind of trauma, being a response to trauma, and a way of basically avoiding the uncomfortable emotions that emerge in one's life as a result of traumas that one has had. Mm. I found that to be a really illuminating uh, kind of paradigm shift in how I considered addiction. I think it opens up the door for vastly more empathy. I think especially in American society where we're heavily individualistic and we tend to blame people for their problems and basically say like, well, this is your choice. You shouldn't have chosen to become a meth addict. Right. It's like, well, the story's a little more complicated than that. Yes, you know, totally. uh, Sonia was abused as a young child or something and, you know, ended up having emotions in her teenage years that she didn't know how to cope with and so turned to, you know, uh, some kind of agent to numb, numb the thing. Like, the sto- stories of addiction, when you actually dig into how addictions emerge and where they come from, um, it tends to be actually pretty heartbreaking in most cases like people have undergone and I mean really when you dig into almost any human's story on earth it's like Jordan Peterson says people are like Dostoevsky characters you know they're they're really complex they're really multi-layered and you dig into almost anyone's story you find a tremendous amount of pain a tremendous amount of difficulty a tremendous amount of suffering and interestingness and of course people have plenty of you know joy and everything too but life is a difficult affair and we're basically all carrying around substantial amounts of trauma and most of us virtually all of us I would say are addicted to something or have some kind of pattern of behavior that borders on addiction that is somewhat dysfunctional that is basically covering up uh, or a a coping mechanism to deal with the trauma of just being a human being on earth in 2018 sure 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 yeah I I also think um there's something to be said about context too. Um, you know, Daniel Schmachtenberg talks about this, um, and so does. Uh, have you heard of um, that British journalist Johan Harari? I uh, yeah yeah I can't I've heard of Harari. The name of his book, but um, yeah, Sapiens and no 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 not Harari. Oh okay uh, okay different Johan Harari. Harari. Yeah, he wrote. I can't remember the name of the book, but it was about his experience with depression. Yeah, and, and, and so they mentioned, they talk a lot about context, and I think that's an important variable here because even, let's say, you if you were to 
yourself of all these varieties of traumas that have happened in your life, you're still operating in a world based on trauma and legacies of trauma. Um, and inevitably, you're going to be re-traumatized by that world. Mm. Um, and so we also need to have a discussion about how to create a context that isn't <laughs> um, prone to traumatize people in a variety of ways. Just, I mean, the dynamics of how we work and all the ways we need to commodify human beings to, to, to succeed in work, mm. um, that's inherently traumatizing, you know, but we don't consider that as a trauma, but um, it is because, I mean, in, in my experience, like, once I've had a glimpse of who I'd be beyond trauma, I realize that I love human beings and relating to them in authentic ways, and I've just noticed that there's so many barriers that from happening and a lot of those barriers are reinforced by the culture and society that we live in so, mm. yeah. any thoughts about that yeah several what are the most significant barriers that you feel to give people an example well, well, well yeah but I, I mean so the barriers of trauma right and like that uh -huh. emotional um, detachment and just the suspicion of others but I, what I'm saying my point is that there's specific dynamics within the society that we live in that reinforce those patterns in people. Um, and may, maybe right. like one one counter example would be we talk about apotheosis here. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. So like we just went on this retreat back in May in Costa Rica, right? And so that context was substantially different than the context that we normally operate in. And a lot of you know festivals share this same dynamic but it was a container that not only helped heal trauma but sustained the state beyond trauma which is a healthy thriving human being um, mm. because it was um, intentionally curated and very loving and um, conducive to like humanity's full potential yeah yeah, yeah I think a big thing a big norm shift in going from normal, mundane American society to a container like apotheosis, and what we're talking about here are, uh, was our first apotheosis retreat that... Yeah, sorry. High Existence. <laughs> uh, just, yeah, fill, fill people in. Yeah. Uh, we at High Existence uh, uh, have, have, begun, have begun creating retreats, and we created our first transformational retreat called Apotheosis in Costa Rica this year. And that's what we're referring to. But one thing I think that was a huge shift was that it was sort of understood going into apotheosis that there would be a norm of basically like radical openness, radical kind of vulnerability, and radical acceptance. Like, uh, and just kind of unconditional acceptance and love of all the different aspects of being human. And having going in with that understanding and having that as kind of the foundational setup of the entire context, I think, really resulted in immediately people opening up and connecting and going deep with each other in a way that we just unfortunately don't see very much in, in standard kind of American life, because one, I think one of the biggest things preventing people from just truly authentically connecting with each other and like letting genuine 
love and appreciation flow freely between each other. It's just that we actually have this norm or this kind of taboo around excessive vulnerability that basically, well, for one, there's kind of this machismo type of like uh, masculine norm where it's considered, you know, not a manly thing to be overly vulnerable or to really like express emotions or share, you know, intimate details of one, one's life about things that were really difficult for oneself. There's that, and then there's just this general cultural norm that that basically says uh, you shouldn't go too deep too fast with people. You should mostly keep things on the surface, and a lot of people end up having entire, like, long, drawn-out friendships where every conversation stays on the surface, and you never, you never break through into that person's actual, like, I often just want to ask people, like, you know, what is, what is really going on with you these days? What is on your mind lately? Like, what is actually occupying the majority of your internal attention as you're going about the world? What is troubling you? What is, what is your suffering been in the last couple of years? Yeah. Because instead we ask, like, how are you? How's it going? It's yeah. like, oh yeah, how'd the Chiefs do last weekend? And yeah. like, oh, weather's good. Yeah. And we keep it on these, you know, this really small subset of right. of commonplace, somewhat, you know, surface level topics, and right. and we we a lot of times in a lot of cases never break through to that more real emotional life that we're all carrying around inside of us. And when you don't express that to anyone, that's alienating that's yes. that's where real like loneliness and depression emerge in a lot of cases I think is not being able to express your real emotional truth and what you're really going through mm-hmm. to people around you who understand and empathize so. yeah and uh, it's uh, easier or not like I said depending on the container that reinforces those kinds of open authentic sharing and, and vulnerable uh, ways of relating more of those containers, I feel like. Right. Yeah. It's. I feel like, yeah, if we reach a certain critical mass of having these kind of sacred spaces and retreats, and these gradually become more of a commonplace thing, like, to go on retreats, you could gradually kind of shift a cultural norm in the direction of increased vulnerability. Like, we're, we're currently driving... We, I've spent the last... 10 days in San Francisco, I feel like San Francisco is a really interesting instance of an American city that actually has, to a large extent, shifted its cultural norm away from kind of the mainstream culture of America in a direction where it's it's almost like perfectly normal, acceptable, and even borderline expected in San Francisco to start to fairly quickly get into like some deep shit or like weird shit and just you know you meet someone and you know two minutes later suddenly you're talking about um you know their their ridiculous escapades in uh, thailand that were really formative for them or their uh you know their cryptocurrency startup or whatever it is there's just like the 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 array of common and acceptable and expected conversation topics tends to be much broader, I feel like, in the Bay Area than a lot of other places. And it's actually something that people 
want to see. It's kind of like a, a, if you went to the bay and you just tried to talk to everyone about the normal kind of array of American small talk topics, you'd probably be met with a fair bit of like, oh, uh, this person's kind of boring or yeah, like, yeah, like totally. limited. It's actually, yeah. people are actually a little bit like elitist about like, to uh, elitist be, vulnerability. Be going on some, yeah, yeah, elitist vulnerability. That is, like, that's pretty funny. You need to be going on some deeper, weirder, more vulnerable shit for me to feel like you belong in the bay. There's almost a little bit of that type of vibe, but at the same time, there's also a healthy side of it, which is just like people have come to expect to just open up more, talk about weirder shit, talk about more personal shit more quickly with people in the Bay Area, which I think is a really interesting uh, development and kind of social experiment. Um, but yeah, like, uh, I, uh, do you have anything to say in response to that? In response to that? Um, well, I mean, yeah, I guess related to the Bay Area, um, I'm not from here. I grew up in South Carolina. taboo in America against going to see a therapist. It's kind of, there's this 
long, deep-rooted idea that, oh yeah, only like crazy people or people with real problems go to see a therapist. Like normal, well-adjusted people don't go to see a therapist. Right. And that that itself is an expression of this dysfunctional, trauma-based American cultural norm that says like, you know, just buck up, buckshot, yeah. like just uh, suck it up and get on with, you know, chopping wood and carrying water or whatever. <laughs> Days work. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Well, that was an effective strategy for a certain time, you know, because right. um, back in when that was the more popular strategy, there wasn't all this awareness around trauma. There wasn't resources to address that trauma, you know. So, yeah. What did you do? You resolved to just, well, this is just the way it is. So we got to move forward, buck so up, and just get along. Come on, boom. Well, we got to just become hardened like cold shells exactly. of human beings right. who just kind of automatically go about our default survival tasks. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so now we've you know reached a place of greater affluence where we're not kind of in survival mode and maybe some of these norms are outdated and there's more potential for a higher degree of human flourishing, but some of these outdated norms hold a lot of people back from actually seeking the resources that would help them to heal their trauma and reach a higher level of flourishing. And so I feel like it's important to say that I think in a lot of American cities, the stigma around seeing a therapist or counselor is really dissolving and people are realizing that there is absolutely nothing shameful about going to talk to a therapist or counselor. A good therapist or counselor is an absolute gift from above. They're like an extra sensitive, very perceptive, wise human being who's just there to basically listen to you what you're saying back to you, help you understand yourself better, and then equip you with um, some strategies to basically get better at just uh, living inside your own mind and communicating with people around you in a constructive way and just creating a life that flows more easily and healing the trauma that you've accumulated so that you can reach a higher degree of flourishing. Like A therapist is really a gift, and I think we need to absolutely eradicate this stigma lingering stigma around around seeking therapy um if you feel if you feel you need it i mean yeah i have no qualms about saying that i've spoken to multiple therapists in my life and been you know really assisted by in particular a therapist from san francisco a few years ago um you know this is just a tool this is a very useful tool that's at our disposal and you know you should not be afraid to seek help if you feel you want to talk to someone yeah, it's very expensive for a lot of people, though. Unfortunately, we need right. to find ways yeah. to democratize therapists more. Right. Yeah, that is another issue, the economic side of things. But plenty of people could afford a therapist and mm-hmm. still, and don't still don't because go of the stigma. Because yeah, of no, the stigma. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm totally on board for getting rid of that stigma. Yeah. <laughs> Shocker there. <laughs> what? An aspiring yeah. therapist. Yeah. To get rid of the stigma around therapy. Yeah, I I also like crave a day where therapists become obsolete too, where just people are so vulnerable with their friends and their immediate family, where and people have such a high degree of um, awareness that they can offer the role of therapist to a lot of people. I mean, obviously there's going to be more extreme cases where more um, specialized knowledge and education and experience might be useful, but. I think for a lot of people, like, just 
whose close intimate connections with friends and family could resolve a lot of mm. their issues maybe yeah 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 that's a that's a pretty hopeful point of view yeah I would like to see that as well um yeah I feel like we should <clears throat> maybe try to we've talked a lot about about uh, trauma now we've really really covered some ground here and digging into trauma and why it's important to heal it and um, I think it should be pretty apparent the utility of doing this in individual lives I mean trauma basically just leads to a lot of resentment and pain and dysfunctional patterns that cause you to get into interpersonal drama with the people around you and just cause you to feel unwanted emotions and so healing trauma is really beneficial on the individual level and then, uh, and then I do, I do really think that this discussion connects with the discussion about the current point we're at as a species, and what we, what we really need to do to course correct our current trajectory in such a way so as to not be self-terminating. In other words, like we've kind of gotten onto a track as a species where our collective wisdom and decision-making and um, kind of ethical awareness have not kept pace with our technological power, so we find ourselves in this really precarious situation where our actions are leading to, you know, uh, extreme ocean acidification and pollution of the air and deforestation and uh, climate change that could become terminal and uh, we, the, the planet is laced with nuclear warheads that could basically occasion a global apocalypse if we um, end up in a nuclear war, and then we're on the verge of developing a number of other frightening, terrifying, basically weapons from hell that could blow us all to smithereens, and yeah. specifically like uh, replicator technologies, like nanotechnology and bio technology like genetically engineered super plagues things of this nature unfortunately these things are unlikely to be the substance of science fiction for too much longer we're reaching the verge of actually developing these technologies and so we're at a point as a species where we're gaining this basically godlike power and we need to learn how to wield it and definitely wielding it from a traumatized place as a species is almost certainly going to result in doom. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this, how do you think this discussion of trauma that, connects to... In exactly the way... Yeah, you. I think you trying to thought there was some point. Um, you... The traumatized state is a state of less agency, a state of less sovereignty mm. um, in your capacity navigate the world is diminished significantly in a traumatized state um, and given like you said we're in a, in a position where we have to deal with so many overwhelming aspects of reality at the moment um, like we need to overcome our trauma and inhabit states that can um, deal with the situation at hand more effectively yeah, like you said, that I don't think that uh, 
traumatized actors are going to be able to handle the scale of problems that we're, we're headed towards. So. Right. Yeah. And this kind of connects to, there are a couple of thinkers um, who Jonathan and I have been paying a special attention to in recent times. Daniel Schmachtenberger, who we've already mentioned multiple times in this conversation, and Jordan Greenhall, or Jordan Hall, I think he may have changed his name back to Hall, a bit of a debacle there or something, but basically, these two guys are co-founders of a company called Neurohacker, which um, is is working in the no-tropic space to create, uh, they create a product called Qualia that many people may have heard of, it's basically um, a cognitive supplement that you take intended to uh, just kind of elevate your baseline of psychological well-being and cognitive functioning. Um, And their entire kind of mission statement at Neurohacker is related to trying to kind of increase the collective cognitive capacity and collective choice-making ability of the human species. It's all tied into Schmachtenberger and Greenhall's kind of theories about sovereignty, which is a kind of uh, an up-and-coming buzzword that uh, Jonathan just threw out there. Could you talk a bit about what the Schmachtenbergerian and Greenhallian (laughs) conception of sovereignty is? Uh, I love that you just threw that out there. (laughs) Yes, the Schmachtenbergerian theory of sovereignty. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I I read Jordan um, breaking down what he meant by sovereignty a while ago. He has a, a really great ar- article on it. You guys can feel free to check that out. Um, but there's a lot of overlap with agency. Um, so sovereignty is your capacity, as far as I understand it, to make effective and good choices in the world. Um, yeah, so that's the, the, the gist of it. So Right. It can be kind of boiled down to this uh, fairly simple-sounding, you know, uh, description, but they kind of go a lot deeper with it, and there are all these, like, attributes of of sovereignty, like uh, discernment and um, uh, resiliency and all these different, basically, like, aspects of kind of high cognitive functioning or wisdom that enable some human beings to be much more effective actors in the world than others, like, enable human beings to make, you know, it's, it should be clear to everyone that some human beings are much better than others at making sense of the world and then taking decisive action in the world based on their model of how reality works and then actually, uh, deriving or, uh, um, realizing the outcomes or something close to the outcomes that they had intended, um, and so that's really the entire, the entire kind of intellectual project of Daniel Schmachtenberger and Jordan Greenhall. I mean, these guys' intellectual interests probably span, you know, vast oceans of human knowledge. But kind of their primary thing that they they they've been talking a lot about in different lectures and podcasts and on their blogs and Medium and really encourage everyone listening to this to check out Jordan Greenhall and Daniel Schmachtenberger because they're probably two of the people who seem to have their fingers most closely pressed to like the pulse of what is really happening on 
planet Earth at this moment and what kind of needs to happen to what kind of kind of course correction humanity needs to undergo in order to actually become sustainable for the long-term future. Their entire project really revolves around a recognition that our level of sovereignty on an individual and collective level is not currently high enough to effectively and wisely manage the amount of technological power we're gaining. And so we basically need to upgrade our individual and collective sovereignty and our kind of collective, like Jordan Greenhall talks about collective intelligence and kind of innovating new forms of collective intelligence, which is kind of a, a, a fancy way of talking about new forms of governance, such as things like liquid democracy or something along those lines. But basically, these guys are really interested in, okay, how do we do that? How do we make the average human being on Earth and all of us collectively just better at making sense of the world, which means actually accurately apprehending what is happening in the world and having models that actually accurately reflect the world, and then choice-making, actually making decisions and taking actions on the basis of those models in such a way that effectively brings about states of affairs that are desirable, generally, for human beings that kind of align with roughly universal human values like uh, prosperity, freedom, peace, not killing ourselves. Um, so yeah, that's kind of a rough description of their project, and I think I think their their undertakings at Neurohacker are really interesting and admirable because uh, they're interested in kind of cognitive supplements, nootropics, and the like, because these these solutions for individual enhancement are extremely scalable. Basically, they're, they're trying to kind of crack the code of creating something that is genuinely a, like, no risk or highly low risk or basically a, a supplement with virtually no downside that simply enhances human beings and increases their clarity and mental acuity and just upgrades their cognitive capacity. And if they were able to kind of hack this and, and create something that just works for a lot of individuals in this way, the solution is basically scalable to the to the full extent of humanity. Like virtually everyone could could start taking qualia in theory, and then we just experience kind of a collective upgrade. And I'm sure they don't think that that's all we need, but they think that that can you know support us in this endeavor to upgrade our collective sovereignty. Um, do you have anything to add to that, good sir? Yes, I. Uh, sorry, I was out traffic here. I, I got the last bit of your point there, saying that essentially their work with enhancing cognitive capacity isn't everything, but that it's a piece of um, um, enhancing your sovereignty, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, this, um, so yeah, I think that's a, a very important piece of it. Um, I also like that they draw a lot from integral theory. Um, like I was showing the other day, they had this um, this image of the, the four quadrants and basically divided up into individual on top, collective on the bottom. Um, what was the other one? Hardware and software, left and right. So break it down into all these separate categories about how 
um, what different things and um, how different things affect us and affect our health and development. So they're, they're working from a very holistic, um, multidisciplinary approach, which I find really important and, and fascinating. So good on you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah, I think, you know, there are a lot of ways to go about enhancing one's individual sovereignty. I think one kind of takeaway for me from studying their work and listening to Jordan Greenhall and Daniel Schmachtenberger is that, um, you know, a lot of this work really begins with enhancing your individual sovereignty first because it's really hard to um, take effective action in the world and actually lead people and teach people to move in a more sovereign, more uh, wise direction if you if you yourself have not already done a substantial amount of internal work and, work and reached a level of resiliency and discernment and sovereignty that, you know, is already admirable. So, I, and this, this kind of connects with just realizations I've had in recent years about how you know, as much as there are these collective problems, and many of us do need to be taking actions, action trying to find pragmatic solutions to collective problems, there's this inescapable fact that uh, this work of improving the world or course correcting the human enterprise really begins with yourself and with, and you know, there, there are various activists who would, would disagree with me and get up in arms and say, oh, that's the, you know, in, the selfish individualistic paradigm talking, say, like making an excuse to just endlessly kind of focus on the self at the expense of doing these more collective projects. But I, I just really think that uh, it's... You're, you're just saying to st that's the starting point for yeah. the individual, right? Yeah, and, and I agree with that. Causality is bottom up in terms of effective change, not top down. So, and they interrelate, of course. Like like I was saying earlier about, you know, who I am beyond trauma. It's it's I can't just do it all myself. I need an environment that reflects that state to me, right? And and in the same way, we need environments that enhance our sovereignty. It can't just be us trying to like muscle through, you know, challenging toxic environments we need to have the external world reflect our inner world but it, like you're saying though it does start with the internal with the individuals right. and manifest outwards so. yeah I think Robert Anton Wilson makes the point somewhere in his writings that uh, the most basic unit of or the, the actual fundamental unit of humanity is the individual and that groups are really abstractions that we kind of uh, impose over humanity. Like, groups themselves, they're entirely constituted of individual humans. There is no actual entity that is the group. Any group is made up of individual humans, so any kind of group or collective upgrade or enlightenment has to consist of individual upgrades and individual uh, processes of enlightenment or development or evolution or whatever you want to call it that culminate in in a collective or group effect 
themselves or maybe taking strides themselves. And so, yeah, I really do think that this, this work begins with each of us basically asking, like, what, I mean, it connects to the trauma discussion, like, what are the things that are causing me to behave in suboptimal, unwise ways that cause suffering to me and those around me and that just generally don't allow me to live in alignment with kind of deeper, more important values like love and respect and honesty and intelligence. Um, and a lot of the, a lot of the time that's trauma and then you've got to kind of solve the trauma puzzle. And then beyond that, you know, you really have to ask yourself on an individual level, like what is, uh, like, kind of, what, what am I, who am I, who do I want to be, and I think if you, if you excavate through the layers of conditioning, I think most all of us on, on some level, like as children, we were curious about the world. We were asking a lot of questions and trying to learn and trying to understand the world. And so, to me, the process of kind of um, engaging in this process of sort of never-ending learning, growth, and evolution really begins with uncovering and reconnecting with that childhood spirit of curiosity and realizing that you began with this kind of organic curiosity about the world and if you're able to uncover that and just find out where it directs you like what are you curious about what what are you interested in learning about if you actually start to take an interest in things and question things and get the ball rolling in that regard it kind of becomes this self-fueling cycle where interests and questions just lead to more interests and questions and then pretty soon you find yourself on this path of basically endless learning and expansion and growth and which learning inevitably leads to upgrading yourself in various ways upgrading your models of reality gaining new ways of making sense of reality that yeah. enable you then to make better choices and so I think healing trauma and covering that curiosity those are really fundamental building blocks of the kind of more sovereign world that we need to actualize yeah yeah that's such a, a good point um i wouldn't have thought to touch on curiosity but and we talked about this too before just how much learning and growth happened in our lives once we tapped into that inherent organic curiosity mm -hmm. um through the use of certain substances but <laughs> um Sacred plant medicine. Sacred plant medicine, yes. And, and, <laughs> but when you tap into that curiosity, um, the, the things that we're talking about here about cultivating sovereignty become less of a chore and it becomes more of an organic unfolding. You don't feel like you have to like struggle to, like, oh, I gotta do this thing. You know, you just, mm. you're naturally drawn to right. heal and yeah. cultivate learning and growth. It's intrinsically an enjoyable process. Right, 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 right. And it's actually a huge source of meaning. Mm -hmm. And this is where I think a lot of people would hear this discussion or they would have tuned out by now kind of thinking like, oh, geez, these guys are asking me to do something, like take more responsibility for my life and try to be able to make better sense of the world, make better choices. This all sounds like hard work, but mm -hmm. the, the paradox is that 
actually taking responsibility, getting interested, becoming curious, and and trying to endeavoring to learn more and endeavoring to reach this place of greater wholeness and well-being actually becomes this extremely meaningful pursuit. And I I don't really think that a similar level of meaning can be obtained by sort of like nihilistically sitting on the couch and just smoking weed and playing video games all day for, you know, that quickly becomes like dull and you feel dead inside because as a human being, I think there's this really deep kind of drive within us to actually be um, meaningfully engaged in the world. Yeah, Yeah. that's a great way to put it, yeah. yeah. Meaningfully engaged in the world, engaged in Yeah, take, taking action in the world, taking action in the world, useful action, like actually, yeah. yeah, being useful in some way to our fellow human beings or our fellow earthlings, that is like a primary, extremely fundamental source of meaning for human beings, mm-hmm. so. Yeah, but uh, I, I really want to like nail down how important this curiosity piece is because like taking action in the world from a sense of like extrinsic duty or like someone told you you ought to do this is not going to be sustainable you're like it's kind of like those new year's resolutions like a lot of people make them and then like after a while they get uninspired like the really sustainable actions can arise best from tapping into your innate curiosity so i guess try to find ways to to do that Mm -hmm. um, first that could be like a first step Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. I think when you uncover that organic curiosity, it becomes this inextinguishable kind of flame. Like, um, what's that quote by Plutarch? Like, uh, true education is not like, uh, I don't know, filling up. It's not filling a bucket. bucket. It's lighting lighting a flame, something along those lines. Like, yeah. Once that flame is ignited, you just kind of have this self-propulsion where you're just going to you can basically follow that organic curiosity and organic interest until you turn to bone dust and uh, it'll it'll just it'll be this guiding light but unfortunately yeah so much of our education system and so much of our society is built around almost stamping out that organic curiosity and telling you no we've already figured out the answers they're in the back of the textbook all you need to do is memorize these answers and then regurgitate them on this test and all you need to do is learn how to listen to your uh, teachers and then your bosses and jump through the hoops that they tell you to jump through and then you'll be successful all of this filters into this process of basically telling you no your intrinsic questions and your intrinsic quest for understanding and meaning and your own answers and your sense making are not not important Uh, it's more important that you're able to just kind of follow instructions but that is an obsolete paradigm that made a lot more sense during uh, the kind of industrial factory based age of yesteryear and now we're in a time where adaptability and sense making on an individual level is becoming vital both for individual prosperity and for collective flourishing and survival as we face the the tumultuous nature of the 21st century so really yeah I think reawakening that organic curiosity and realizing the importance of that and realizing that your own sense making your own understanding 
you know, it's like that Terence McKenna quote, like, you should take seriously the notion that understanding the universe is your responsibility because no one, it's only your understanding that can assist you. No one else's understanding is going to help you. It's ultimately, it's yours, it's going to assist you, and ultimately our collective trajectory over the next coming couple centuries and whether we survive or flourish comes down to whether we as individuals take responsibility for making sense of and understanding the world and under, embark on that quest on our own and then and then try to you know obtain this understanding and then use it in actually useful ways to take meaningful action in the world so um here here yeah yeah <laughs> that might be a pretty good note to end on i feel like it kind of tied it all together with the trauma and the, and the global issues discussion and yeah. it all kind of fits yeah. might be a good time to wrap up on it do you have any concluding words my esteemed colleague Jonathan Toniello yeah um, I would say if anyone is going to take action based on this conversation to be patient with yourself and know that we're all doing the best we can given the circumstances that we're in and the understanding that we have and that um, yeah it's not easy this the, the life we live in the world we're in right now so just be patient with your own process wise words yeah. a decent man yeah. <laughs> kind of I'm, I'm half decent I'm a very good human um, but yeah to anyone who's uh, still with us thank you for listening this has been a an extemporaneous conversation about life and the world and everything in 2018 taking place in Northern California. Appreciate you tuning in and uh, take good care, stay golden, peace and love, sent directly to your longitude and latitude.